Today's reading is Daniel 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves." So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees, and he said to me, O oh, Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute, and behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O oh my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the Book of Truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. These are the words of our Lord. Good morning. You guys doing well? Outstanding. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. Also want to welcome those of you that are on YouTube live right now. Thank you for joining us. This is a crazy chapter. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Daniel chapter 10. We're working our way through the book of Daniel. We're almost finished. We've got this week and two more. We'll be done with this book and head into a new teaching series in a few weeks. Daniel, Shining in a Dark World. We're talking about angels and demons. Daniel chapter 10. I don't like sugar-coated cereals, and I don't like sugar-coated sermons. And uh, this is not a sugar-coated sermon, to say the least. So I forewarn you, I'm here to comfort the disturbed and to disturb the comfortable. And so we aim to please week in and week out. Look at your sermon notes there, part of the intro. So we start off with a bit of a punch here. As there is a kingdom of God, 
so too there is a kingdom of Satan. I mean, I don't, I don't think I need to explain that. I mean, you just have to look around. Look around in the world. You've got, you got a major war going on. And the two are in conflict. Few Christians fully realize the extent of Satan's influence. Nor do they understand their own authority. 1 John 5.19, we know that we are from God. This is what he says, 1 John 5.19, we know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 1 John 4.4, little children... You are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. So that's our promise, those that are in Christ Jesus. So the fact is all people belong to one of two kingdoms, the kingdom of light or the kingdom of darkness. Everybody in here, everybody out there, everybody all over the planet earth are in one of those two kingdoms. If one is not in Christ, if you have not given your life to Christ, if you have not come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are not in His kingdom. You are under the power of the devil. You are in the power of the devil, even if there is no visible, sensible awareness of being in the devil's grip. So just think about that just for a moment. So we're talking about spiritual warfare here. When it comes to spiritual warfare, there are two extreme views. We either underestimate the work of the enemy or we overestimate the work of the enemy. Either way, we fall prey to his work in our lives. Listen to me. You've got to listen. You've got to get this. You have an adversary. You have an adversary and you are no match for him. Don't underestimate his power. He's coming after you. He's gonna try to get you. He's gonna take you down. Trying to do that individually with your family, with this community, with this nation. Don't underestimate his power. You have an adversary and you are no match for him, but he is no match for your savior. Don't overestimate him. Here's what I love about Jesus. Jesus makes the darkness tremble. And when you study through, especially the Gospel of Mark, oh my goodness, anytime where Jesus walks in, demons tremble. They're shaken to the core of their being. That's the power and authority that we have in Jesus Christ, if indeed you are in Jesus Christ. Now, let me bring you up to speed if you haven't been with us through this series just a little bit. So, in Daniel's chapters 1 through 6, they taught us how we can shine in a dark world. If you haven't uh, listened to any of those, I'd invite you to go back and listen to each one of those. They're really very helpful. Two parts of this book. So, the first six chapters are narrative. The next six chapters are all apocalyptic. They're... Uh, their prophecy, and that's 7 through 12, chapter 7 through 12 of Daniel, and they're teaching us why we can shine in a dark world, because God is sovereign. Our lives are never out of control as He works all things for our good and His glory. God is in control, but He's not controlling. He's not a micromanager. We still have human responsibility that works with His divine sovereignty. We talked about that in the last few messages as we headed into this second half of Daniel. Now, what you need to understand in this second half, chapters 7 through 12, there's four visions that Daniel receives. First vision was Daniel chapter 7, where we studied the four world governing empires, plus the fifth world governing empire that we still await, which is under the rule of the Antichrist. And we learned in that chapter that God always wins, because we saw the victory through God and His Son, that we always win. Second vision was Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8 goes into more detail of, of a couple of these world governing empires. It's astounding prophetic detail of world history and the foreshadowing of the Antichrist in Antiochus Epiphanes who persecutes Israel. And we learned there that God rules history. And we answered the question, well, what does that mean and how should we respond? 
If you're in turmoil over the current election, you need to go back and listen to that message. God rules history. If things didn't work out the way you had hoped through this election, you need to understand what God's up to and be okay with that within reason. You know, we still got to keep fighting and still, uh, you know, we, we need to keep doing what God has called us to do. We need to be light in this dark world, but we've got to leave the results in God's hands because he's still in control. Okay, enough said there. And... Uh, and that's that right there. What does that mean that God rules history and how should we respond? And then the third vision was Daniel chapter 9. Uh, Luke did a great job unpacking that, talking about the prayer. It's the 70-year exile is ending that the nation of Israel is under. Daniel realizes that. He hits his knees, begins to intercede for his people and prays for revival. Gabriel shows up, tells Daniel what God has planned for his people. At the end of that is a bit of a complex uh, prophecy. It's, it's the 70-week prophecy. We didn't go into that. If you want to learn more about that, you need to take our eschatology class, uh, typically taught by Neil Bellamy. He does a fantastic job. He's kind of our uh, in-house expert on a lot of these issues, and so you'll need to take that class and understand that in more detail. Well, all that does, it talks about the future of Israel, the coming of Christ, his first coming, uh, the seven-year tribulation, and then the second coming. A lot of detail about the future. Now we come to the fourth vision. Fourth vision that Daniel receives is found in Daniel's chapter 10, 11, and 12. So 10 is where he receives the vision. This is the context. And then in verses 11 and 12, he begins to describe the vision. So here's on your notes. So, so Daniel 10 draws back the curtain and gives us a glimpse of the spirit realm and how our intercession impacts conflict between angels and demons. This is an incredibly profound chapter in the Bible. And if you ever get discouraged in prayer, you need to go back to this chapter. Because sometimes, and what it's showing us is that our weak, feeble prayers make a difference. There's something happening, happening in the spiritual realm. Sometimes you just feel like, oh my goodness, I feel like I'm talking to the wall. I feel like my prayers don't go any higher than the ceiling. I don't know what's going on. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, based on the authority of God's word, based on this chapter, based on many other scriptures, God hears your prayer, God answers your prayers, things are happening, but sometimes we need to have that curtain pulled back so we can look into the spirit realm. This is what's happening right here. We get a glimpse into the spirit world and we see these angels and demons and all that's going on here. So Daniel chapter 10, we see the effectiveness of the praying believer, angels and demons. Daniel chapter 11, we'll look at that this next week, the power of the Antichrist, the war of wars. And what you're going to see, this is where we're headed as a world, as a country, evil's going to get much more evil. It's going to get more wicked. It's going to get darker. And yet, at the same time, God's going to pour His Spirit upon His people, and it's going to get brighter for us that are following Christ. So you're going to see this major contrast, this war happen. And then Daniel chapter 12, we see the full victory of the redeemed, our bright future. So here's what we're looking at here today. And you can see this on your notes. We're looking at our weapons. It's found in this text. What are our weapons for spiritual warfare? What should our attitude be? By the way, if you don't have the right attitude, the enemy will take you down. You also need to know what the conflict is over. What is that conflict? And then our marching orders. If you don't understand this, and if you're not living in the reality of this, you're going to experience around us, the lawlessness will increase, and it tells us in Matthew 24, 12, the love of many will grow cold. You will drift away from God. You will be part of the great falling away from Christ in the end times. If you're not prepared for the battle that's at hand, that's coming in our direction, you'll be totally unprepared. You're going to be taken out by the adversary. That was part of the Olivet Discourse by Jesus in the end times found in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. He says, because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold, but he who perseveres to the end will be saved. So, so how do we persevere to the end? Right here, you gotta know your weapons, gotta have the right attitude, gotta know your conflict that, that's at hand. And you got to understand your marching orders. That's where we're headed. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. Let's pray. Let's ask for God's help. Holy Spirit, we're, we love you. We thank you that you're here this morning. We pray, God, that you would manifest your presence in this place.
Lord, help us to see more clearly the spiritual war that rages all around us for the hearts and lives of people for all eternity. We are so grateful that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have victory over sin, death, and evil. Teach us how we can live in the reality of that victory and freedom and bring that victory and freedom into the lives of the people we come in contact with every day, our family, our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers. Lord Jesus, you promised us the gates of hell would not, prepare, would not prevail against our efforts. May the gates of hell not prevail against our efforts. We pray these things in Jesus' beautiful and glorious name. And everyone said... Amen. So look at the weapons here. Weapons are found in verses 1 through 3, 7, and 21. Now, let me give you a little bit of the context here. Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. Daniel received this vision during the third year of the reign of King Cyrus in 536 B.C. This was just over two years after the Persians had conquered the Babylonian Empire in 539 B.C. In 538 B.C., Cyrus gave the decree for Israel to return to Jerusalem, and they arrived there in 536 B.C. So this is what, in chapter 9, he's praying for. Our 70-year exile is ending. We can return home and rebuild. So that's what he's praying for. But things aren't going so well. In, in Daniel chapter 10, verses 2 through 3, Daniel was fasting and praying for the remnant that had returned to Jerusalem as they were facing many setbacks and opposition in their rebuilding efforts. So they could go back home, but they're not doing well. So here's what we need to know about spiritual warfare and our weapons. Here's our weapons. And you need to be proficient in these weapons. That's my job. That's our job here to help you to become proficient. The first one is prayer. So we see Daniel with prayer and with fasting. We'll talk a little bit about that. That's verses 1 through 3. And then verse uh, 7, we see that he's in a community, his prayer partners, he's in a community of uh, his prayer team is with him here. That's verse 7. And then we see reference to the word of truth in verse 21, God's word. So prayer, community, God's Word. So let me ask you, how proficient are you in these? How disciplined are you in these? Now, you don't do it out of duty. You do it out of delight. You're not motivated out of fear and pride. You're motivated out of a love that's smitten by the beauty and the glory of who Christ is and what He's done for you. You're going to naturally want to grow in your relationship with God and be used to make an impact in people's lives. You want to shine in this dark world. That's what should motivate you. And so... God's Word is truth that brings freedom to our lives. God's prayer connects us with God and takes the Word of God, which is clear to our minds, and makes it real to our hearts. It takes those truths and drives them deep into our heart. And of course, community gives us encouragement and accountability. In Matthew 4, 1 through 11, we see Jesus in the wilderness, and he's fasting and praying for 40 days, and he's attacked by the enemy. Anybody know how he responds to the enemy with each accusation, with each attack? He responds with what? It is written. He responds with the Word of God. The Word of God is a, is a sword. It's part of our, our weapons. And... and and so we see also in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20, and I would encourage you to read this because it mentions both prayer, community, it's in the context of community, he's, written, he's writing that to the church in Ephesus, but also God's word. But there's a list of the whole armor of God that you need to know and be familiar with. So you need to study that. I did a whole teaching on that a number of years ago through Ephesians. It's a two-part series. You can find it on our website. It's called Spiritual Warfare 1, Spiritual Warfare 2. I talk about the whole armor of God. And then Hebrews 10, 24 through 25, that's a cross-reference to this idea of community. Now listen to me. Predators pick off strays and the weak. And if you're not in community, you are straying from God, and you're going to become weak over time. I don't care what you say. There's a lot of people that I know. I even have friends that think that they can do the freelance Christianity on their own. You can't do that. You're going to be taken out by the enemy. He comes after strays because you don't have the protection of community. You don't have the power of community. So that kind of thinking will get you killed. 
If you don't think, I don't need a local church, I can be a Christian and do my own thing. No, you can't. Study the Bible. The whole New Testament is written to local church families. When it talks about the church, some 95 times it's talking about local church families. You've got to be connected to a local church family. It's got to be more than just what we see here. It's also going to be, you've got to be involved in some small groups where you're sitting across the table and people are holding you accountable and speaking truth to you as you speak truth to them. So there's a lot there. You need that protection. Oh my goodness, I am so thankful that I've got people here in this church that have my back and they hold me accountable and they encourage me regularly. I need that. Oh my goodness, I would have gone off track a long time ago if I hadn't had that. You need it too. And so we got prayer, community, God's word. And so let's talk a little bit about this idea of fasting. In Matthew 6, Jesus talks about fasting and praying, verses 16 through 18 of Matthew 6. And he doesn't say if you fast, but when you fast. And so fasting should be a part of, of, our, of our life. And, um, and in fact, what is this fasting? It is voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. But it's not just food. Maybe you're diabetic, maybe you struggle, you need to have the blood sugar level up. Well, it can be the abstaining from or denying yourself the enjoyment of something other than food. I don't know if you notice this, but he's, he's denying himself the delicacies. Did you notice that in the, in the reading? So delicacies, wine, and then also oil. It almost sounds like for three weeks he's not taking a bath. So don't, you, don't do that, okay, if you attend Desert Breeze. <laughs> and especially you show up to one of our services, okay? And so, uh, I mean, he's just, he just says he doesn't anoint himself with oil. I think he's taking a bath. He's just not using the oil. So let's hope that's what it is, okay? Don't anybody take that literally here. But, uh, may, but uh, I'm not going to take a bath for 21 days. Oh, maybe you shouldn't do that. You might get fired from your job. And uh, so anyway, it's, it's just kind of fascinating. So he's just denying himself delicacies. So you can deny yourself. So let me just say it again. It can be abstinence from food for spiritual purposes, and it can be something other than food, such as people. You feel like you need to fast from people? You got a few people you need to fast from? <laughs> I got a whole list of people. How about media? You can fast from media. How about sports? Not until football season is over will I fast from sports, okay? Okay. How about a hobby? How about from talking? Has anybody ever said, hey, I think you need to fast from talking for a while? Well, maybe you need to listen to them. A couple of you went like this just right there. That was a good jab time. How about from sleep or even from sex? I mean, you, whatever the list might be. I mean, there's other things that we can fast from. Fasting is an exceptional way to rebel against the spiritual status quo and to express our holy discontent in this fallen world. Basically, it just means, God, I mean business. I want to know you. I want to grow in my relationship with you. I want to push back the forces of darkness, not only in my life, but in the lives of those all around me. I'm tired of playing games, God. That's what that means. I want your presence. I want your power. I want your peace unlike ever before. And so it's just, it's just really serious, real serious business with God. By the way, in Matthew 17, 21, maybe you've heard this. It's uh, in not all translations, but it's in, uh, in many of the early manuscripts where it says, Jesus says to his disciples, remember him and his uh, Peter, James, and John, and Jesus are on the Mount of Transfiguration. They come down. His disciples are trying to cast out a demon. It doesn't work. And Jesus is, seems a little bit maybe frustrated. He says, hey, where's your faith, guys? And then he says this, and this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. How many are familiar with that text? You guys know what I'm talking about there? You know, you know what he's saying there? That demon is in too deep. You better get on your knees and do some fasting. That's spiritual warfare. That's what he's saying. You need to persevere in this. Isaiah 58, 1 through 12 gives us really the wrong way, verses 1 through 5, and the right way, verses 12, 6 through 12, on how to fast. And uh, so fasting is, is just a powerful part of our arsenal. 
And we've seen it happen here through prayer and fasting here at Desert Breeze. Just some powerful things happen as a result. I've seen it in my own life. A couple quotes here on your notes. Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon their knees. Do you believe that? I do. See, Jesus has already won the victory. All we are doing is enforcing and manifesting that victory in time and space on earth in our lives and people's lives. Here's the next quote as it relates to fasting. The man who prays with fasting is giving heaven notice that he is truly earnest. So prayer and fasting is not overcoming God's reluctance, but laying hold of his willingness. Oh my goodness, do you know how much God wants to bless you and wants you to be a blessing in the lives of others? That's all you're doing through prayer and fasting. You read his word, you're involved in community and you're praying and fasting. I'm telling you, God will do some amazing things in your life and through your life. That's our, part of our arsenal right here, our weapons. Now what should our attitude be? This is found in verses 4 through 12. The glory of this very high-ranking angel humbles Daniel. We see that in verses 4 through 9. Let me read verses 8 and 9 here. If you have your Bibles open, follow along. So I was left alone, so his prayer team cut and run, okay? That's what that means. I mean, they didn't see what Daniel saw, but they were so overwhelmed with the glory, they were frightened. The presence of the holy God through this angel was so overwhelming to them that they go, oh, we don't know what to do. So they cut and run. They saw this vision and no strength was left in me. So I was left alone and saw this great vision and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed and I, I retained no strength. Then I heard sounds or heard the sound of his words. And as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. I mean, he's being humble. That's humility, falling on your face before God. But also, it gives Daniel confidence. Look at verses 10 and 11. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, oh my goodness, this is beautiful. Oh, Daniel, man greatly loved. So he's humbled, and at the same time, he's almost lifted up. It's like, Daniel, <laughs> you're greatly loved. By the way, those words are for all of us. When you hear those words, maybe not in an audible way as he was hearing here, but in your heart, in your Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit, through the study of God's word, through a worship song, that new song that we sang, talking about the love of God, how we are so loved in him. If you're paying attention, you could hear those words. Oh my goodness, those words are powerful. To hear from God, the God of the galaxies, that you are beloved, you are greatly loved. I need to hear that every day. Oh, Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel. Now, here's what I believe should be the disposition of people who have, are walking in vital union and communion with Christ, those that have had an encounter with Christ. When people tell me, I had an encounter with Christ, this is what I would see in their life. This is what you can expect. There's gonna be humble confidence. That's on your notes. That's your next couple fill in the blanks. Humble confidence. So I can always tell, okay, come on. Did it just get up there? Okay, are they, are they slow back there today? Okay, I just want to, we're going to hold them accountable. We've got community going on here. As I look back there, I didn't see him, and then all of a sudden I saw him, so I think he might have just woke up back there. Okay. Okay, humble confidence. Humble confidence. That's, that's what you should expect from people, and I've got examples of this. Isaiah, verse, uh, chapter 6 through 8, Luke did a great job last week and talked about this. Remember Isaiah? Saw the Lord high and lifted up, his train filled the temple. And what did Isaiah, what happened to Isaiah? Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Woe, low. God humbled himself and then go. Confidence went out to proclaim the gospel of God. 
You see Luke 5, 8 through 11. You see that with Peter. He realizes it's Jesus. He's humbled, and then Jesus says, hey, you're going uh, to be a fisher of men. And then Mark 4, 35 through 41, you see the disciples in a boat heading across the Sea of Galilee. Storm breaks on their boat. They feel like they're going down. And these guys are strong uh, fishermen who shouldn't be afraid, but they are afraid. They wake up Jesus. He's sleeping in the boat. He stands up. Peace be still. It's calm. They go from being frightened by the storm to now they're frightened by Jesus. They go, who is this? Who is this? So they're humbled by the storm, and then they're like, wow. What amazing power he has. He just saved our neck. He saved our lives. Revelations chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. Uh, You got this with John. He has an encounter with Jesus. Now, why is our attitude crucial to spiritual warfare? Because pride and fear will give the enemy a foothold. Pride and fear will give the enemy a foothold. Here's how he does it. Here's the one-two punch of the enemy. This is what you need to keep in mind. And you can put these verses down. He tempts us. That's... 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, and then he accuses us, Revelations 12, 10. I didn't put those on your notes. You can put them there. So he tempts us. That's 1 Thessalonians 3, 5, and then he accuses us, Revelations 12, 2. It's a one-two punch. He sets us up with temptation. Here's what the temptation sounds like. Hey, guess what? You're going to be a whole lot happier by disobeying God. You don't need to follow him. Just Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Make your own path. I mean, that's the message of our culture. You'll be happier. You can't trust him anyway. He's holding out on you. And then you take the bait, and then he beats the living daylights out of you with guilt and shame. Oh, you blew it now. You're beyond reach. You can't do, you can't do anything. God can't use you. You're gone. So here's what he does through, through pride. So he tempts us. You're too good to need God's grace. That's pride. You don't need his grace. You can find happiness and help and healing on your own. And there's two forms of that. There's the younger brother and the elder brother found in the prodigal son's story in Luke chapter, um, chapter 15. So there's two kind of ways that we, we are full of pride. The younger brother... I don't need the farm, I don't need the father, I can do it on my own. Or the elder brother, that somehow I can earn right standing with the father. That it's all earned, and so I have kind of more of a robotic, rules-oriented relationship with God. And when all hell breaks loose in your life, then you're blaming God because, hey, he, he owes me. Because I've been a good person. That's called religion, folks. The enemy's taking you down. It's not about a relationship with God. You're confused. You've... You, took the bait of pride. You can never earn your right standing with God. That's freely given by grace through faith in Christ. And so he'll tempt you. You don't, you're too good to need God's grace or he accuses you. You're too bad to receive God's grace. That's fear. Pride, fear, one-two punch. So keep in mind, is there a humble confidence in your life? Humility eliminates pride, confidence eliminates fear. I've always been troubled by this verse a bit, and, I, I, and the, the, the more I've grown in the Lord and had encounters with Him and understand Him, I understand it now more so than ever. But 1 Timothy 1.15, Timothy, or, uh, Paul writes to Timothy, and he's pretty old in the Lord as he's writing this, and he says, this is a trustworthy saying, and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and I am the worst of them all. I think, whoa, whoa, whoa. you've been walking with Christ for a long time, and you're calling yourself the, like the worst sinner of all. I think there's something to that. Luke 7, 47, this is where Jesus is at a Pharisee's house, and he's very self-righteous and holier than thou and very defensive about his life. And you know how that kind of religious attitude manifests itself in a person's life. And a woman comes in who's a prostitute and begins to just weep and wash Jesus' feet with her tears, wipes him with her hair, puts perfume on his feet. And this 
This Pharisee is appalled. He says, man, if he knew who this gal was, he would not have anything to do with her. And then Jesus goes on and kind of explains to him, kind of gives him a little bit of a glimpse of what the gospel is about. And he, he, says, he says this, whoever is forgiven much loves much. Basically saying to the Pharisee, you are clueless, dude. You don't understand your dire condition apart from me. And therefore, you're not going to be open to receive the, ma the magnitude of my provision that I've come to give to all mankind. When you understand your dire condition apart from Christ, the magnitude of his provision will get, fill you with a love unlike you've ever experienced before. In fact, this is kind of how I know when people are really walking with Christ. The closer you get to God, the more you will see your sin and brokenness. And the more precious, electrifying, and amazing God's grace appears to you. Does that make sense? So when you come across Christians that are proud and arrogant and self-righteous and holier than thou, they're not walking with Christ. They're not walking in the reality of this. Because it tells us in 1 John 1, 7, if we walk in the, in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and, and the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sins. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we claim to be without sin, he's talking to believers. He's just saying, you're not walking in the light. The light exposes the darkness in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the closer you get to the light, the more it's going to expose your brokenness and darkness. But praise God, you have a redeemer who brings healing, health, and wholeness to you. So as he exposes that, he doesn't do it in a shameful way. He does it in a way to set you free. He's wooing you closer to him. So when you experience conviction as opposed to condemnation, condemnation comes from the enemy to push you away from God. Conviction draws you closer to him so that he can heal you and bring wholeness to your life. And that's when I know people are experiencing him because there's this humble confidence, courage in the Lord, and that'll keep the enemy off your back. Now we've got to talk about the conflict. Ooh, the time is flying by here this morning. There's a lot on this. this when, as I was studying this, it's like, wow, now we're going to get into the kind of the nitty-gritty of the conflict. Look at verses 12 through 14. In fact, let me read verses 12 through 14. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand... So Daniel's in turmoil over his people returning home, and they're, they're not doing well. Like, Lord, help me understand this. Seventy-year exile is over, and they went home, and they've got all kinds of obstacles. My friends aren't doing well spiritually. And notice it says, and humbled yourself before your God. You set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God. Your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. So when you pray, he hears your words and he responds to your words. But notice this, verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia, this is a high-ranking demonic spirit. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. I came with the message, but a demonic power withstood me for 21 days, but Michael who's the archangel, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Almost sounds like a lot of demons pounding him. So this, this is that demons and angels conflict that's happening as, as he's pulling back the curtain and you're getting a chance to look. And in verse 14, and came to make you understand. So let me just read that again. And so the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. This is a description of... In fact, I think the description of this high-ranking angel parallels that of Jesus in Revelation 1, but I, I don't believe this is Jesus. There's some argument about this, and the reason I don't believe it is Jesus is because he would not have been withstood by the high-ranking demonic fallen angel. As I said, Jesus makes the darkness tremble. Just read through the gospel accounts, particularly Mark. I'm telling you, demons freak out over Jesus. 
You want to clear a room of demons? Just invite God's kingdom rule and reign. You invite Christ into your life. Oh, my goodness. You proclaim His name. You talk about the blood of Christ that was shed for all mankind. Now, here's the scenario. You've got to get this. You've got to understand this. Daniel's prayer is heard in heaven, and an angel is dispatched with a special message for Daniel. The angel encounters opposing forces and is delayed for 21 days until Michael, the archangel, is finally dispatched to the other angel to fight the prince of the kingdom of Persia so that the first angel can deliver his message to Daniel. That's the scenario. Let me give you some thoughts on your notes. This is what you need to understand as it relates to spiritual warfare. We have three enemies, society, Satan, and sinful self. It's multidimensional. And Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 makes that clear. Until you realize this, you'll not understand evil's depth, pervasiveness, and its intractability, its stubbornness. We tend in our culture today, American culture, to think oh, all the problems have natural uh, origins. Everything comes from kind of a natural origin. We think, oh, it's just, it's our chromosomes. You know, I was, I'm wired up this way. That's why I do these crazy things or bad things. Or we say it's our conditioning. I'm wicked and evil because my parents put my diaper on too tight. My conditioning, I was raised in a bad environment. Or it's my circumstances. My circumstances are horrible. So you're horrible? You're going to respond to those in a negative way. So we tend to make kind of blame shift, kind of natural causes. The Bible says, no, actually, it's society. We're swimming in, in, in sin in our American culture, and we're almost immune to it now. I don't think that we're sensitive to so much of the sin that surrounds us. Society, we have an adversary that's coming after us, and we have our own sinful nature. See, our own... Our own Inclination is to take good things and turn them into ultimate things in our life, like marriage and family and kids and jobs. And we try to get our sense of identity and security and significance from temporal things as opposed to eternal things such as from God. That's part of our sinful nature. And here's the next thing. So behind the scenes, deceiving, manipulating, instigating the flesh and blood evil, society and sinful nature is something that is not flesh and blood. That's Satan. So behind the scenes, deceiving, manipulating, instigating, the flesh and blood evils, society and sinful nature is something that is not flesh and blood. It's Satan. And so this is what we're understanding from this text. But let me give you a New Testament text on this. Ephesians 6, 12, for we do not wrestle. By the way, that word wrestle means life or death. Wrestle. If you study that word in the Greek, it's just like he wants to take you down. He wants to bring death into your life. So, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It's not as it seems in the physical realm. There's something deeper going on. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Many theologians would say that this is authority structure of demonic powers. And so there are angelic and demonic authority structures over each city and nation. And so political leaders and governmental infrastructures are affected by the activity of angels and demons. The result of their conflict affects the, the events and decisions and cultures of cities of the earth. This prince of Persia is uh, modern-day Iran. What demonic power is still over there that wants to take Israel out? There's a major demonic power, probably the same one that he's talking about here. There's demonic powers over, we just, my wife and I came from Spokane, had to drive, went through Vegas. What kind of demonic power is over Vegas? What kind of demonic power is over Arizona? What kind of demonic power is working in America today? This is what it's saying. So at that higher level, there's major influence, but then, it, then you have different levels all the way down into people's personal lives, into families, into communities. I'm telling you, I've driven into some cities, and it is so crazy dark. I felt it. It was overwhelming. My wife and I both, I, my wife said, oh, my goodness, this is one dark, wicked place. 
And it was almost as if the Holy Spirit was giving us discernment as we were going through this place. We began to pray like crazy. It was like, oh my goodness, I can see why these people are responding the way they're doing and why this is such a dark place. Why they have porn shops on every other corner. Why there's such wickedness and evil going on here. These leaders are being influenced by something beyond them. And that's what the Bible is very clear about that. And I'm not denying human responsibility because, as I said there, we've got society, our culture, we've got Satan, but we also have our sinful, sinful self, our own sinful nature. And so that's why it tells us in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, we're exhorted to pray for kings and those in authority. I, I loved it so much when we did our linger night just before the election. This place was packed out with people. We've got to pray in church here, folks. We got a group of people that love, love God. We're praying. We're seeing things happen as a result of what God's doing here. It's absolutely amazing. And, and I, I don't think it takes much to really look at our culture today and look at, at the elections. You don't even have to look at the elections. But our culture, our society, Arizona, is voting more and more in the direction of ungodly values. That's evident. It's getting more and more wicked in our culture today. You don't even need to look at our elections. Just look at the lives of people in our community, in our society. That's why we need to keep praying. Don't stop praying. Don't stop praying. That's the encouragement of this. Now, it's interesting in Luke 10, 17 through 20. Let me give you a little history on the, on the demonic world, on Satan. In Luke 10, 17 through 20, this is what Jesus said. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What? Jesus was there. He said, I saw him. I saw him crash and burn. He rebelled against a holy God. You can read more about that if you want to understand his fall. Isaiah 14, 12 through 17. Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19 talks about the fall of Satan. Revelations 12, 4, it says that he led a third of the angels in heaven in rebellion against God. Those are demons, by the way. And so he's got this massive authority structure in Matthew 25, 41, it says eternal fire is prepared for the devil and his angels. So let me ask you this. What is Satan's goal? And I'm not talking about the, the big master, major plan, high up. I'm talking about in your life. You need to understand this in your own individual life. How is he trying to take you down? He's coming after you. What is he doing? What is he up to? I put this on your notes, and this, these are verses you probably should kind of know by now because I've talked about it enough. But in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, it says, For the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus Christ. Listen to me. He's trying to keep you from seeing the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for you that would ruin you for anything else. He wants you to be so captivated by the beauty of Christ and his love for you that you are overwhelmed, that you love him more than you love anything else. He's trying to blind you to that. He does that to, to unbelievers. But what does he do to believers? 2 Corinthians 11.3. This is what Paul writes to the church in Corinthians in Corinth. He says that, that I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, that somehow your hearts may be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Sincere is authentic, real, that you would somehow just kind of go through the motions and check the church box and check the prayer box and check the Bible box. And, and there's no authenticity and sincerity. You're not pouring your heart out to God. You're not connecting with the God of the galaxies. Sincere and pure. Pure means undivided. In other words, you realize those things that are in your life that are competing for your heart's deepest loyalties and affections. And you're overcoming them with a superior love for Jesus. That love, the loves of the temporal are trying to draw your heart away from him, but you overcome them because you know that his love is more supreme, more satisfying. And so you're turning to him, you're looking to him. The superior love of Christ. In fact, I love in Psalm 51, 12, it's the repentant psalm of David. David fell prey to the work of the enemy through adultery and murder and betrayal of his nation. And 
And the prophet comes and speaks to his heart. He repents and turns back to God. And in his prayer, he says, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Now, here's how it went down. It wasn't that he sinned and lost the joy of his salvation. He lost the joy of of his salvation. Therefore, he sinned. So what you have to do, if you want to keep the enemy off your back, is to nurture that joy, that love, that affection, that first love for Christ, that you want him, you want to grow in your relationship with him more than anything else. Lord, restore to me the joy of myself. I can't help but think that that's a prayer for some of you here this morning, that you just pray out to God, God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. May I want you and love you and walk with you and enjoy you more than anything else on this planet. That's how you keep the enemy back. That's because, listen, your adversary is hell-bent on keeping you from loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving your neighbor as yourself. The great commandment. He's going to do everything he can to keep you from falling in love with, with Jesus and knowing his love for you. Okay, I got, I've got uh, about three more hours of teaching here. And, and so I'm, I'm joking. Uh, actually, I'm not. But... Um, I'm just trying to ease some of you there. And so uh, here's the next one. So our prayers provoke a heavenly fight between angels and demons that can make a difference in people's lives on earth that have eternal implications. Matthew 6.10, when we pray this in, our, in, the, in the Lord's Prayer, he says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer reclaims what man has lost through sin and restores God's rule and reign. I am telling you, through your prayer, you can bring love where there's hatred, hope where there's despair, peace where there's anxiety. You've heard me say this before, don't curse the darkness, turn on the light, light dispels darkness. There's no doubt about it, when I'm praying, when I'm walking through my prayer list, I'll say, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, break the power of the enemy in this person's life. Force out the work of the enemy by the grace and the love of Jesus Christ. And I, I take authority over the enemy in Jesus' name in all of his works and efforts in my friend's life, in this church's life, in the many lives that I bring before him. I pray that the righteousness, peace, and joy of God would just move into their life and chase away the fears and the craziness that they're experiencing. So don't curse the darkness, turn on the light. Turn on the light. Darkness is dispelled by light. Light dispels darkness. Focus on Christ. Certainly you can identify, oh, I see what's happening here. This person's in despair. Lord, bring your love. Bring your hope. They need hope. Pour your hope into their life unlike they've ever experienced. Oh, my goodness, I see hatred and bitterness. Lord, they're wounded by a lot of past things. Lord, bring your love. Heal their heart, Lord, like nothing else can heal their hearts. Do you hear what I'm saying? So, man, you do business with God. You fast and pray. You get on your knees. You seek God. You pour your heart out to him. I'm telling you, God works as a result of our prayers. This is what it's saying to us here. Your kingdom come, your will be done. We have a great example of, of, of this, a couple examples. For, uh, 2 Kings 6, 16 through 17, Elisha prays that his servant's eyes are open to the spiritual realm of God's power being greater than those who oppose them. They're opposed by the many enemies. The servant is freaking out over it. He's, he's anxious, stressed, and worried. And, and Elisha's kind of cool, calm, and collected. He just says, Lord, open his eyes to see that greater is he that is with us than he that is with them. We've got greater power here, and his servant sees that the hills surrounding them are filled with horses and chariots. A great text. I would encourage you to study that. Exodus 17, 8 through 16, Moses is up on a hill praying for Joshua and the Israelites to defeat the Amalekites. Let me read verses 11 and 12. And whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek Amalek prevailed. So it's kind of a picture of prayer. So he's raising up his hands. He's praying. His, his team is winning. And then when he lowers his hands, his team is losing. I was reading this, and I shared with a group last night. I was saying, I wonder if that would work with the Cardinals if we did this today. I'm going to walk around like this. Okay, yeah, they need more than that, I think. 
Okay, so, uh, so, he's, so he keeps his hands up. His hands get weary, it says, but Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side, so his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. I mean, there's implications in this. Sometimes I get weary in my prayer and God has sent people alongside of me to hold up my hands and to help me to continue to pray. Listen to me. We're not quite done. We got a couple minutes before we hit the bottom of the hour, but let me just say this. Don't, please, don't stop praying. Don't stop praying for your lost loved ones. Don't stop praying for the people in here in this church. Don't stop praying for the people within our circle of reach right here at Desert Breeze. Don't stop praying for our city, our state, our nation. God is working. God is working. Don't grow weary in well-doing because in due season you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. 6-9 of Galatians. And so keep persevering. I've seen prodigal sons and daughters come home. I've seen midlife parents get saved. I've seen elderly aunts and uncles come to faith in Christ just before they die. Oh my goodness. I've seen God work in people's lives over and over again. It's the prayers of a righteous person are powerful and effective. Prayer makes things happen that otherwise wouldn't happen if we didn't pray. Now, I gave you some text on angels there. You can study that on your own. And uh, Hebrews 1, 14, Psalm 91, 11. And by the way, we don't pray to angels or command angels. God is in charge of angels. So we pray to God and he's the one that dispatches the angels. We good on that? Okay, just keep that in mind. Now what's interesting here is that it seems as though when you look at the timeline, Daniel's thrown in the lion's den about the time that he starts receiving uh, this vision in Daniel 9 and 10. And I think that the enemy is trying to take him down. It's kind of a counterattack on Daniel's life. Satan is not only a predator who goes after the weak and the strays, but he, he's also a strategist who goes after the leaders or officers so that the soldiers under those officers will scatter. It tells us in Ephesians 6:11, he uses schemes, their methods. I've seen that happen. I've seen churches' leadership go down in churches and, and, and people scatter. Two years ago, we were under major attack. I believe it was very much demonic. And there were, there were people that responded with fear and pride. They didn't respond well. And many of you responded with love for God and love for the people in this church. And you begin to persevere and pray. And we are healthier now than we've ever been. I'm convinced of that. It's interesting that God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth with Daniel in the lion's den so that they wouldn't harm him. Here's our marching orders. They're found in... Verses 15 through 21. Let me read verses 18 through 19. And again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I, I strengthened. I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. Here it is. God will empower you to be what he wants you to be and to do what he wants you to do because you are greatly loved. It's found two times in this text. It's also found in verse 11. Listen to me. God, this is what it means to be greatly loved, and this is what we need to revel in each and every day. We need to rest in this. We need to savor this every day. I am greatly loved by God. It means God takes delight. God delights and takes pleasure in you. I mean, this is throughout the Bible. God delights and takes pleasure in you. Revel in that, rest in that, rejoice in that. John 15, 9 makes that clear. As the Father loves the Son, the Son loves us. Abide in that love. As the Father loves the Son, He loves us also. That's 17, 26 of John. Listen to me. This is the love you've been looking for your whole life. No other love will satisfy you like His love. This love will free your heart. It will satisfy your soul. It will heal all of your wounds. Here's here's the list of the things that it does. Therefore, fear not. Don't need to be afraid. Peace be with you. This love will give you, it'll get rid of the fear in your life. It will give you a contentment and a completeness. He says, be strong and of good courage. 
And then here's our response. Your wish is my command. Did you see that in verse 19? And, he, and as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak for you have strengthened me. Lord, you speak. You call the shots. I completely surrender to your life. Your wish is my command. Oh, by the way, and it ends with this note, verses 20 through 21, no ceasefire this side of eternity. Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold the prince of Greece. Wow, the Grecians haven't even come to attack them yet. It's another 200 years. That demon's already out there working and he will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. Next weekend, the War of Wars, Daniel 11. I'll be up front at the end of the service along with any available elders or leaders. If you're new, we'd love to meet you if you need prayer. If you feel like the enemy's on your back, we'll get him off your back, okay? We will pray for you right now in this ending prayer, but we'll come up and we'll pray with you at the end of the service. If you have any questions, we'd love to answer those questions for you. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. I'm going to pray Ephesians 3, 16 through 19. We pray, Father, that out of your glorious riches, you would strengthen us with power through your Holy Spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith, being rooted and established in his love so that we may have power together with all all the saints to grasp the width, the length, the height, the depth of his love, to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Everybody look up here just for a minute. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace unlike you've ever experienced before in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Love you guys. God bless you. Mm -hmm.